today's reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. And in the Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 967. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may, excuse me, so that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no left. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It is good to be back in the pulpit. I feel like I've been gone longer than uh, I would like to be, but it's good to be back preaching with you this morning. Before we get into our sermon intro, let me just give a real quick mini family chat. Doesn't require a stool. It's just a mini chat, but uh, two things I want to just mention real quickly. First is uh, small groups. So we're reopening up uh, small groups, uh, kind of relaunching them this fall. And so if you have been interested in joining a small group, you've been thinking about it, but you haven't pulled the trigger on that, let me uh, give you a pastoral prod uh, to go ahead and do that. You can go online and you'll find our small group page, and it's put together really well. And you can sort through the different group options that are available, read about different groups. 
uh, find out when they meet, what times they meet, what they're studying and focusing on, who's part of the dynamics of the group. So let me encourage you to go to the website, uh, find a group that works. You can sign up there online. That info gets sent over to Christy, and then Christy helps make connections uh, to you and to that group. And if you go to a group and it ends up not working out for whatever reason, more than welcome to try out another group. So let me encourage you to make use of our small group ministry. And then the last, or the second thing, last thing in the family chat here is uh, our survey, the elder survey. You, if you've been watching your email, you've seen that we've uh, sent out, the elders have sent out a survey that just helps to assess the congregation, the spiritual health of the congregation, some of the demographics of the congregation. So that's a useful tool for the elders and their shepherding care of us as a congregation. So if you've not filled that out, I encourage you to do that. You can find it in the weekly email. So if you just check your weekly email, you'll find a link right there. The, the uh, survey intro says it takes 15 minutes. I did it in seven. You can do it in seven too. So don't let that uh, 15 minutes scare you away. And uh, so uh, fill that out. All right, so it's good to be back preaching as I said. And uh, I was grateful to have Pastor Dennis with us uh, last week and his emphasis on prayer. And if you were able to join us last Saturday or you were here at church on Sunday, you were able to benefit uh, from, from experiencing Pastor Dennis's ministry to us. And that was an encouragement to me. I hope it was to you as well. And prayer is an aspect of our corporate Christian life, corporate life together that I've been praying about. I've been praying about us praying and uh, reflecting on that. So it was good to have Dennis with us to kind of guide us and lead us and to help open up our imaginations about what we can do collectively as a church. So I'm going to continue to pray and think and follow where the Spirit leads on that, but um, grateful for having Dennis with us. But today, in any case, we're back in 2 Corinthians, moving forward in our sermon series, Yet Always Rejoicing, and we're looking at chapter 8, 1 through 15. So Pastor Eric started this passage a few weeks ago. He got through verse 7, and I'm going to just jump back and grab one point uh, out of uh, uh, that first section of Scripture, and then we'll move on uh, for the rest of the sermon from chapters, uh, from verses uh, 8 through 15. But as Pastor Eric mentioned last week, or two weeks ago, we're starting now a section of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 that are all uh, tied together around the theme of relief giving. So that's going to be our focus over the next few weeks. And before we get into our text, I want to take just a moment to remind ourselves of the context of what has spurred Paul to be writing to the Corinthians about relief giving. And Pastor Eric uh, talked through some of this last uh, two weeks ago, but if you weren't here, you might have missed that. Uh, Just good to remind ourselves of it. So Paul wrote 2 Corinthians in 55, 56 AD, there in the first century, And it was during a decade-long famine in the Roman Empire, food shortage in the Roman Empire. And some of the empire was hit worse than others, but the provinces of Judea and Samaria, or Syria rather, uh, were some of the areas that were especially hard hit. So we can get a picture of how the church responds, the kind of global church, at this time it's still pretty much just in the Roman Empire, but the the church spread out through the Roman Empire responds to this crisis that's taking place. And you can see some of this in Romans 15. So you don't have to turn there, I can just read it to you. But the Apostle Paul, as he is uh, finishing out his letter to the church in Rome, he says this. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. But at present, 
I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So Achaia is the province where Corinth is located. Right, so if you're leaving from Jerusalem, you're going to pass through Macedonia. It comes geographically first, and then Achaia is the next province a little further west. And Paul says that he's working his way through Macedonia and then Achaia, and he's collecting money to make a gift, a relief gift, back to the saints who are in Jerusalem who are being particularly hard hit by these food shortages and this famine. And so Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, he's in the middle of this relief effort. And as he's traveling around in all of his missionary journeys, he's uh, talking to the various churches and soliciting uh, relief gifts to go back to Jerusalem. So that's what's happening here in chapters 8 and 9. Paul is inviting the Corinthians to participate in this relief gift back to Jerusalem. All right, I want to say just two more quick things, though, to make sure we're all using the same terms the same way, and then we'll look at our text. But when I talk about relief giving, that's not the term that Paul uses here, but that's the concept that we're uh, using to describe what's happening. When I'm talking about relief giving, it's not the same thing as the offerings that we give to church on Sunday mornings to support our local congregation. So if you attend Calvary, this is your church home, you maybe put something in the offering every Sunday, or you do it through your uh, regular giving is online, however it works. But but we collectively, in order for this congregation to exist, we have to pull together our resources and pay for our utilities and pay for our staff and our heating and our grounds and the building repair and maintenance and all of, all of that. Right? So that's the offerings that we give on Sunday morning are primarily directed internal here to our life together as a congregation and, of course, our mission out into the world. But most of those monies are being used to support what we do here so we can continue to exist as a congregation. But that's not relief giving. So relief giving, as we're talking about it here in chapters 8 and 9, are monies that are given beyond your own local congregation, right? So when we pull together our money to give our money collectively to some other need that is existing beyond our local congregation, that's the idea of relief giving. So when there's brothers or sisters in different parts of the world that are suffering or in, in some kind of uh, period or uh, 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 kind of distress, Right, then and we gather our money together to send it, that's the idea of relief giving. Or if I do that individually or you do that individually, that's the idea of relief giving. And the second thing that's important to note about relief giving, as we're talking about it here, is that it's principally directed towards other Christians or towards the church. Right? So this isn't giving to charity more broadly. The, the New Testament and then the Christian tradition has the idea of giving alms to the poor more generally, whether the, the poor are Christian or not Christian, part of the church or not part of the church. But the relief giving that we're looking at here in chapters 8 and 9 is focused specifically on the people of God. It's alleviating the distress of the family of God in different parts of the world. All right. So that's what we're referring to when we talk about relief giving. And so now let's jump into our passage today. I want to draw out four principles about relief giving that will help us think about the part that we should play in ongoing relief efforts. All right, so the first principle is this. Relief giving should be animated by joy. In verses uh, 8, 1 through 5, Paul, begin, Paul begins his uh, comments about relief giving by drawing attention to the Macedonians. So he's already collected money from the Macedonians. He's writing from Macedonia over to Corinth, and now he's preparing the Corinthians for when he comes to receive money from them. 
And Paul notes that the churches of Macedonia, at the time of their gift, have been going through a severe test of affliction. That's how he describes it. And that they were suffering from what he says was extreme poverty. Now, likely Paul is referring to the effects of the food shortages and the famines that are plaguing the entire Roman Empire. But Paul is saying that even in their poverty, the Macedonian churches nonetheless gave generously to the relief effort for the poor back in Jerusalem. And Paul says in verse 3 that they not only gave according to their means, but even beyond their means. Apparently, Paul tried to dissuade them from contributing to the relief effort. They were sufficiently impoverished that Paul's like, you don't know, you shouldn't be giving. And he's going to base uh, his resistance on that, on his principle of equality, which we're going to look at here at the close of this passage. But the Macedonians were so eager to give and to contribute in this relief effort back to the poor in Jerusalem that they actually begged Paul earnestly that they would be allowed to participate. So Paul, is, this is all very commendable, and Paul is holding out the example of the Macedonians to the Corinthians as he's inviting the Corinthians uh, to participate. But I especially want to draw our attention to verse 2. All right, look at verse 2. In verse 2, Paul says that the Macedonians had an abundance of joy and, at the same time, extreme poverty. They had two things together, an abundance of joy and extreme poverty. And that pairing, it stood out to me in particular because it conveys the same basic tension that we've been exploring all throughout our 2 Corinthians sermon series, and especially in chapter 6, verse 12, which is where we get our sermon series title, Yet Always Rejoicing. In 6.12, Paul says that he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Two things that shouldn't belong together, yet in the gospel are held together. The remarkable thing about the gospel is that it enables us to hold together in a single moment two seemingly contradictory realities. Extreme worldly affliction, in the case of the Macedonians, and abundance of heavenly joy. What Paul wants to convey all throughout 2 Corinthians is that the gospel is not the gospel of your best earthly life now. The gospel is a gospel of the all-sufficiency of the love of God. And this is how it's always been all throughout Scripture. So we can turn back into Habakkuk. You don't have to turn there, but I'll turn back there. In Habakkuk, it's the collapse of Jerusalem. The Babylonians have come in. They've sacked the city. They've destroyed it. They've destroyed all the farmlands around it. And they've taken many, many of the uh, Jerusalem natives captive back over to Babylon. And so Habakkuk is a prophet. He's during this time. He's seen the destruction of his homeland. But this is how he closes out his letter. After talking about all the destruction that has been laid waste in his land by the Babylonians, he says this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. 
He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And Habakkuk rightly sees that the, the glory of knowing God is that in our relationship with God, we are allowed and able to rejoice in the Lord and take joy in Him, even when the world leaves us with nothing. So even the Macedonians, they're in extreme poverty. They have nothing. And yet they have God in Christ and an abundance of joy. That's the glory of the gospel because God is our strength as the people of God. Not our wealth, not our family, not our friends, not our marriages, not our children, not our jobs, not anything that this world can produce. God himself is the all-sufficient reality by which we live. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy to rejoice in the midst of affliction. Perhaps it was a challenge for the Macedonians to get to a place where they could have abundance of joy and the extremeness of their poverty. And that can be the hard work of the entire Christian life, is learning how to have joy in Jesus. But the goodness and kindness of God, the sweetness of Jesus, the sustaining warmth of his presence, this is what we were created for as human beings. And our whole being lives by the life of God. Not by the life, the things of this world. We feast, our souls feast on God. And are fed by God. Not fed by the food that this world can produce. Chapters 8 and 9, all about the themes of giving and money and reaping and sowing. And these passages are often used by prosperity teachers to claim that if you give generously to God, that he will for sure give generously back to you. And that if you've given to God and he's not giving back to you, then it means you didn't have enough faith or there's some hidden sin in your life or something like this, right? And so you, you need to give generously in faith to God. He will give generously back to you. You write a check to God and he's going to double it. And he's going to send it back to you. God does very often give generously to those who give generously so that we can continue to give generously. Paul is going to make that point here in the coming chapters. But he doesn't always give us money back for the money that we've given. And that sort of teaching, that prosperity teaching, has left a lot of people jaded and disillusioned or even turning away from God entirely. Because they saw that their giving to God was a way to get from God financial gain and prosperity. When God didn't give them what they were hoping to receive, it causes them to turn away from God. It's led to a lot of people turning away from their faith. But the damnable thing about the prosperity gospel is not that it teaches us to expect a reciprocity between our gifts and God's gift. The damnable thing about the prosperity gospel is that it implicitly makes earthly wealth the goal of the gospel. As though God sent Jesus into the world so that we could all get rich and live the best version of the American dream. But the true hope of humanity cannot be found in the things of this world. God did not send Jesus into the world to make a great worldly kingdom that we can all participate in. 
The gospel doesn't teach us to find our joy in money. Now, we don't give our wealth to get more wealth, as though wealth is the thing that truly gives us joy. We give like the Macedonians because we are already filled with the joy that comes from our experience of the profound depths of God's love and grace. So every earthly good that God gives to us, our wealth, also our children, our marriages, our health, our friends, our jobs, all the good things that God has made, created, and has given to us, he has made as types and signs of his love. But those things are not his love. He himself is the love that he wants to give us. And when we have him, we have his joy. Because he himself is living, eternal, thriving, pulsing joy. And when we have his joy, we have everything. Even when we have nothing in this world. And the reality is that if all of us live long enough, we will live to a point in our life where we lose everything in this world. Because that's what death is. Death is the sundering of us from the things that God has made. And this is why God gives us himself. Because we were made for more than what this world can give us. This world's great, it's good, it's got beauty in it, and God works through all of this to reveal himself to us, but what he wants us to lay hold of most fundamentally is himself. And that's what the Macedonians had learned and is what enabled them to have an abundance of joy even in the midst of their extreme poverty. So I don't know where your extreme poverty is this morning. Maybe you have extreme poverty as it relates to finances, just like what Paul is talking about here with the Macedonians. But maybe your extreme poverty is some other trial or circumstance in your life. Whatever your extreme poverty is, though, you can still, in the midst of that, without denying the difficulty or the reality of whatever that is, you can still have the abundance of joy because you have Jesus in the midst of it. All right, so that's our first principle. Relief giving should be animated by joy. As we consider relief giving, various needs come across our paths, it's important to remember that the motivation, the energy, the power to participate in relief giving is not to get joy, but because we already have joy. You could say that the joy of the Lord is the strength for relief giving. All right, here's our second principle. Relief giving is encouraged, not commanded. So now we jump forward to verse 8. In verse 8, Paul clarifies that he is not commanding the Corinthians, he's not commanding the Corinthians to participate in this relief effort. So I mean, he says this very plainly like here at the very beginning of chapter 8. Verse 8, I say this not as a command. He goes on then to say in verse 10 that he is giving his judgment about what they should do. And in verse 11, we can see why he is so strongly encouraging the Corinthians to give. It's not because they're obligated to, that they have some duty to do so, or he doesn't even appeal to the fact that they are very rich. We don't know exactly what the state of the Corinthian church was. They seem to be in a better spot than the churches 
uh, in Macedonia and the church for sure in Jerusalem. But that's not what Paul appeals to. He doesn't say you should give because you have a lot of money. He says you should give because you've already said that you were going to. That's a big part of what he's stressing in chapters 8 and 9. So if we peek ahead to chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, which we'll get to in the coming weeks, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they had already committed to give and that Paul had boasted about them to the Macedonians that it was going to be pretty awkward now if after the Macedonians had given so sacrificially that the Corinthians failed to follow through on their commitment. So Paul was coming from Macedonia with some Macedonians to collect the gift that the Corinthians said that they were going to give, and it was going to look pretty silly if the Corinthians actually didn't have any money to give. Right, so Paul was writing to prepare them to follow through on their commitment. And the simple point, though, I want to make here is that the relief giving, Paul is saying, is not a command. It's not an obligation. And it's not the case, we can see this elsewhere throughout Scripture too, but it's not the case that we are responsible to meet every single need that we see. So in chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or not under compulsion. And God does not call all of us equally to give equally to relief efforts. Each of us are in different seasons of life with different needs, different family contexts, different resources, and there are so many different relief efforts in the world, particularly now in the internet age, we could easily find out so many different relief efforts that are being uh, advocated for throughout the world. And God isn't commanding us to give to all of them, but he will occasionally direct us to give to some of them. So I would encourage you then, as you think about that, that God isn't commanding you to give to all of them that you see, but he's going to direct you to give to some of them. I would encourage you to intentionally prepare yourself to give towards relief efforts as the Lord makes you aware of them and directs you to do so. Our gift giving, our relief giving should be spirit directed, not need directed. Right? But our gift giving can't actually go anywhere if we don't have any gifts set aside to give. So I appreciated what Jason was saying in this new class that we have going. You start budgeting your money. You kind of keep things in place so that you're able to give when it, an opportunity arises. And so Jill and I, each month, we set aside a portion of our budget so that we can contribute to various relief efforts that we come across. I don't say that to impress you because it's actually a pretty small amount of money, but the point is... We try to prepare ourselves so that we can be spirit-led. As a pastor friend of mine once said to me, you can't steer a car that is out of gas. Right? If we're not putting aside money or having money or access to money that we can give when relief efforts present themselves, then it's very difficult to be spirit-directed in our relief giving. It's the same sort of principle that we do corporately as a church with our benevolence fund. So it's an internal relief effort with our Benevolence Fund. We're giving money internal to our body. It's a microcosm of kind of the global Benevolence Fund that Paul is calling the Corinthians to here. But we set aside money as a congregation each month in a little fund so that we can meet the needs here in our congregation. And we don't know what the needs are going to be, but we want to be prepared to meet the needs as they arise. And so that's why we have our Benevolence Fund. So I would just encourage you, as you think about your participation in the relief efforts that the Lord will direct you into individually, your own particular calling that you have, 
to prepare yourself to be available so that you can participate in those relief efforts when the Spirit directs. Not as someone else commands you, not as you encounter them just randomly, but as the Spirit prompts you and guides you. You do what the Lord is directing you to do and prepare yourself to do so. So the first principle, relief giving, should be animated by joy. Second principle is relief giving is encouraged, not commanded. And then the third principle, relief giving, is for Jesus. In verse 12, Paul stresses that the heart behind the gift, not the size of the gift, is what really matters. So look here back into verse 12. Paul says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So small gifts, small relief gifts that are given freely and willingly are just as acceptable as large gifts. This is the same principle that underlies Jesus' teachings about the widow's might in Mark 12. Uh, we can read this, uh, maybe you've read this uh, story before, but in Mark chapter 12, uh, Jesus is sitting by the temple, and at the temple treasury, there's a box where people can give their gifts uh, uh, worship to God, and so Jesus is there sitting by the treasury. He's watching the people putting money into the offering box, Mark tells us. And many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she has, all that she has to live on. And Jesus' point there, and Paul's point back here in our text in 2 Corinthians, is that the gift is measured not according to its size, but according to the willingness, the heart of the one who gives it. Now, I want to pause here before too quickly assuming, though, a parallel between temple giving in Mark 12 and the relief giving that Jesus is, or that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians. Because in Mark 12, the widow gives her two mites or two copper pennies at the temple as an act of worship to God. It's not a relief gift to the poor, necessarily. And so it makes sense that God wouldn't be concerned about the size of the gift because, after all, it's the heart that counts. That's what God really cares about. But a relief gift, though, we're giving money to relieve people who are in distress. So imagine the poor in Jerusalem who were in danger of starving to death. I imagine they'd be a lot happier to receive $50,000 than the widow's two copper coins. Would they say, oh, it doesn't really matter, it's indifferent, you know, it's the heart that counts. Right. So how can Paul say that the size of the relief gift doesn't matter? I think the answer is found in the verse itself with the word acceptable. Because that invites us to think acceptable to who? Who is the relief gift ultimately to? Are the Corinthians giving money to the poor in Jerusalem? Is that who will find their gift acceptable? No, it's God is who they're giving their money to. It's God who determines whether the gift is acceptable. That word acceptable reminds us that all gifts are gifts, all gifts of mercy given to God's people are gifts given to God. 
So in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is talking about the day of judgment, the final day of judgment. And he talks about how in this final day he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, he's going to put the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left hand. And then he's going to say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Jesus is saying, I was in distress. I was in extreme poverty. You came and you ministered to me. You brought a relief gift to me. But then the righteous will say, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say to them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So when Paul is calling the Corinthians to send money back as a relief gift to the poor in Jerusalem, the truest recipient of that relief gift is Jesus. Because Jesus has so identified with his people, he stands in such solidarity with his people that our pain becomes his pain and our distress becomes his distress and our need for relief becomes his need for relief. So that when we are helping each other, we are helping Jesus. We are giving our gifts not just to earthly people who stand in earthly needs, but our gifts are going in love to those that are united to Christ. And Jesus is telling us, and Paul, I think, is working from this same principle, that every gift of love given to a brother or sister in need, even just a cup of cold water, if that's all we have to give, is received by Jesus as a gift of love to him. And that's why Paul can say that the size of the gift is secondary. It doesn't really matter to the what matters is the heart that lies behind it. So don't drop out of relief giving just because you think you don't have much to give. Some of you don't have very much to give. And that's all right. Jesus isn't worried about that. Give what you can to Jesus as a gift to Christ as Jesus directs you. And he will accept your gift given its sincerity and from a heart of joy. He will accept it as a true gift of love and it will minister to him however much it ministers to those that are in need. So the first principle, relief giving should be animated by joy. Then relief giving is encouraged, not commanded. Relief giving is for Jesus. And then finally, relief giving aims for equality. In verses 13 and 15, Paul states the aim of relief giving, fairness or equality. Look here at our verses. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So Paul's not looking for the Corinthians to impoverish themselves in order to meet the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And no doubt this principle of fairness was why Paul was resisting taking money from the Macedonians. 
because they were already in extreme poverty. That's why they had to beg to be allowed to participate. Paul's heart isn't to impoverish one part of the church so that he can make another part of the church rich. He's looking for fairness or equality. But what does he mean by fairness and equality? Is he arguing for a total equal distribution of wealth, a sort of proto-Marxist Christian socialism, where all Christians are supposed to have the same size house and the same size car and the same amount of money and we take the same kinds of vacations? Paul is not arguing for an equality of wealth. He's arguing for an equality of essential resources. Paul and the rest of the New Testament, you can see this in Jesus' teachings as well, and then historically throughout the life of the church, assumes differing levels of wealth among the people of God. That's why there are certain commands in Scripture to those that are rich. There's commands to those in Scripture to those that are poor. We don't all have the same amount, and the New Testament doesn't expect us all to have the same amount. Christians have never had the same amount of money. And Paul isn't here saying that we all should have the same amount of money. He isn't saying that I shouldn't take my family on a vacation that your family can't afford or that you shouldn't take your family on a vacation that my family can't afford. His concern is not that we would all be able to equally fulfill our wants, but that we would all be able to equally fulfill our needs. Now, some of you might be saying, oh, phew, you know. But Paul's concern that there would be an equality of essential resources nonetheless calls for a moment of sobriety. Because if we fast forward from first century Corinth to 21st century America, Paul's concern for equality probably means that the church in America shouldn't be living as large as we do while Christians in other parts of the world starve to death. I mean, how else do we interpret this passage? Paul is saying this to churches in another province of the Roman Empire, in Achaia, a city in Corinth, about their relationship with the Christians, the body of Christ, over in Jerusalem. I want to readily acknowledge that it's not always so simple to figure out how to get our extra resources to the parts of the world where Christians are most destitute. And very often, just sending money doesn't solve the problem, but only complicates things. So I want to acknowledge that this, is, this can be complicated. And I think it's also worth saying that each year American Christians donate hundreds of billions of dollars to Christian organizations, much of which would qualify as relief giving can find hard numbers, so I'm not going to quote numbers. But it's not like the American church has completely checked out of relief giving. But man, we Americans have a lot of money. Probably the, the most blessed nation financially in the history of the world. And with all of that money, those of us as Christians who live within this culture have to carry the weight of the responsibility of all that money. And I fear that in the judgment of church history, fast forward 500 years and scholars are writing their textbooks about what the church was like in 21st century America, I fear that in the judgment of church history, the way that we've used our wealth might be a black mark on our collective record. 
And I don't have an easy solution for that. And I do know that guilting people is not the answer. It's never the answer. You can get people to do a lot of stuff with guilt for a little bit, once, maybe twice. But we cannot sustain the good practices of the Christian life through guilt. So I don't try to guilt you, even if that was true, that you all were guilty and I was guilty. Trying to motivate ourselves by guilt won't get us anywhere. I would just point us back as well to our second principle that relief giving in every circumstance is not commanded. But I do think that Paul's concern for equality of essential resources among the people of God should give us a moment of pause as we encounter the various relief efforts and think about how the Lord would have us use our money. You and I, as individuals, and Calvary collectively, is not going to solve the problem of every distressed Christian in the world. No one of us has that much money, and collectively together we don't have that much money. But we are generally, as a congregation, an affluent congregation, even if individually that's not always the case. So I think this is something that we need to wrestle with and take seriously. And as relief-giving opportunities come your way, whether that's individually or it comes our way collectively, we need to remain mindful of Paul's concern that there be equality of essential resources among the people of God. And then open ourselves up to the Lord's Spirit to guide and direct us to give in ways that he calls us to. All right, I want to close out here by going back up to verse 9. So this is partly for our, our conclusion here in verse 9. I skipped past this because I wanted to save it to close. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the same basic principle that Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus' sacrificial poverty, his incarnation and his atoning death on our behalf. It is the source, the generative source of all of our wealth and prosperity. Every good thing that we have, every good thing that we have is a gift of grace that comes to us because of Jesus. It's not the case that you know, all, the, all the spiritual stuff Jesus gives us and all the earthly stuff we go out and get for ourselves. Every single thing that we have, spiritual blessings and material blessings, are given to us as gifts from God because of Jesus. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, he says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not, and if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not? Everything that we have is from God. The foundation then of all relief giving depends upon the fact that God has first given relief to us through Jesus. So I don't quote verse 9 as a sort of way to guilt you into doing what Jesus did. I quote verse 9 because our capacity to do what Jesus did is from receiving what Jesus did. We have to receive his love and his grace and the gift of himself into our lives so that we have something to give out to the world, to extend the chain, the golden chain of discipleship. 
The foundation of all relief giving depends upon the fact that God first gave relief to us through Jesus, but not just that God has given relief to us in Jesus, but that we have received his relief through Jesus. Because what good does all the love and grace that God pours out upon the world do for us if we remain closed to it? God's main concern in our lives is not that we would open up our checkbook to him, but that we would open up our hearts to him. He wants to pour out his love himself, his son through his spirit into our hearts. So let me encourage you as I do in one way or another most weeks to open up your heart to God. We're talking about relief giving. We're talking about the ways that our money might intersect with God's mission and kingdom in the world. And there can be a great temptation, I think, that when we start thinking about money, we start to get a little bit protective, right? And we hear that God might want some of our money. And so we kind of close, we close off our hearts, we close off our checkbooks. Or maybe we write a quick check, throw it over there, try to, you know, keep them, keep them at bay, right? You know? But the reason we close off from God, whether it's in our checkbook or whether it's more broadly with our different areas of our lives, the reason we close off from God is because we're afraid if we let him in, he's going to mess something up. He's going he's to ruin something. If we let him into our friend group, he's going to ruin our friend group. If we let him into our checkbook, he's going to ruin our checkbook. If we let him into our marriage, he's going to ruin our marriage. If we let him into our entertainment, he's going to ruin our entertainment. That he's just one big killjoy, right? And we've got to keep him at arm's length. And we do that so often with our checkbooks, right? But when we let Jesus into our checkbooks, we're letting the love of God into our checkbooks. And God doesn't want to come into our checkbooks like he wants our checkbook. He wants to come into our checkbook because he wants our hearts. That's what he wants. He wants our heart. So open up your heart to God's love. Let him guide you. Let him fill you. Let him fill you and then guide you and direct you as he sees fit. Sometimes when it comes to finances, like the rich young ruler, Jesus will ask you to sell everything, give it to the poor. He does that sometimes. Not often, that's not normal, right? But it's not impossible for him to ask that of us. Sometimes, like Barnabas, he asks us only to sell one field. I don't know what he's going to ask of you. I got to just figure out what he's asking of me. You got to figure out what he's asking of you. But whatever he asks of us, we need to remember always that he asks it of us because he loves us. So be willing to be loved, even in your finances, by the one who has given his whole life to make you rich. To make you rich in the one thing that matters more than anything else, himself. He's given you himself to make you rich. God, thank you that you gave us yourself in Christ. Thank you that you have poured out your love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God, forgive us and all the times that we think that You've sent Jesus into the world to teach us just how to live in this world so that we can have a good earthly life. God, you do want us to have a good earthly life to some degree in various ways and various forms, but what you want for us more than anything is that we would know the true, lasting, eternal joy that comes 
only from your presence. So God, open up our hearts. Let us hold nothing back. Open up our hearts that you might fill us up with yourself. Fill us up with the riches of heaven so that we would have something to give back to those who are in distress. God, thank you for giving us your love in Christ. In his name we pray.